Lumos. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Harry Podcast, the show where we analyze and discuss each chapter of the Harry Potter series from a literary perspective. I'm David. And I'm Madeline. And today's episode is called Harry Podcast and Bobotons and Darmstrang. Today we will be discussing Moody's motivation for putting students under the Imperious Curse, everyone's need to show off and make a grand entrance, and what we know about our new heads of schools. Harry writes a note to Sirius, telling him that everything is fine and not to come, and immediately takes it to Hedwig um, for her to take to Sirius, and he's really worried about Sirius getting caught while he's trying to come north to help Harry. In Defense Against the Dark Arts, Professor Moody tells the class he will be putting the students under the Imperious Curse each in turn, and wants them to learn what it feels like. Nobody seems to be able to fight off the curse until it's Harry's turn. Harry has much more success than the others, and Moody demonstrates it on him until Harry can throw it off completely. The fourth years have increasing workloads in all of their classes, but all they can talk about is the tournament and the upcoming arrival of the students from Bobotons and Durmstrang. Fred and George report that they haven't figured out how to get around the age limit yet. They don't even know what, it, what it's going to be. Sirius replies back to Harry quickly and lets him know that he is not fooled by his second letter, and that he is safe, hiding, and back in the country. Later that night, on October 30th, the whole school gathers on the lawn, waiting for the arrival of the Bobaton and Durmstrang delegations. After a while of waiting, they see a gigantic horse-drawn carriage flying through the air, which lands onto the lawn and emits a gigantic woman, headmistress Madame Maxine of Bobatons. Dumbledore greets her. Students in silky robes also emerge from the carriage, and they all go into the castle, leaving their giant flying horses in the care of Hagrid. Soon after, there is a great disturbance in the lake, and a ship emerges, with the students of Durmstrang and Professor Karkaroff, a tall goateed man wearing furs, who is their head of school. As the Durmstrang students are heading into the castle, Ron spots Victor Crumb in the crowd. So this chapter starts with Harry writing to Sirius, saying, never mind, I'm fine. Um, so what's this, Harry's plan here? And, you know, what what do we think about Hermione's reaction and this whole interaction? Like, how is has his relationship with Sirius changed? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I mean, we, we talked a little bit about this at the end of last episode, but um, when Harry gets the letter from Sirius, he's so upset because he thinks that Sirius is going to get caught and it's going to be his fault. Um, so in, in some ways the relationship has already changed because Sirius went from being like a, a father figure that Harry could go to for advice to now being a liability that Harry is worried about. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and this is the, the hazard that comes with having your godfather be a, a wanted criminal, <laughs> um, is that, you know, he can't really go to him for help in person. And Harry thought that he could just ask him for help you know, sort of virtually, and that right. that would be okay. They could have a correspondence by letter and that he could get help from him that way. But Sirius took that to mean, you know, I need to be able to come and talk to you in person. And so he's flying back to the country and now he's in England hiding somewhere. Um, and so Harry's plan is to basically try to send him back. <laughs> but um, Sirius obviously sees right through that right away and is like, yeah, nice try, Harry. Um, 
but don't worry about me. I'm, I can take care of myself. And I'm here already. And, I, and I'm already here, so... Uh, I'm in the country. Yeah. So, I mean, it's... I think another thing with Harry, I mean, this is, like, you know, in some ways just a normal teenage kind of egocentric thing is, like, he thinks that everything is about him, and he thinks that everything that, um, you know, is even related to, like, what's dangerous in the world is kind of, like, related to him and Voldemort, probably. Um, which in some ways is true, yeah. but is also like, you know, Sirius is saying in his, in his first letter, like, you know, I've been reading the signs kind of like, it's not just you, like I've heard other stuff and it's not like this one letter is the thing that made me come back. He's been hearing other rumors about one more gaining power, possibly coming back, the Death Eaters, all this stuff. And so yeah. it's like, he's gath- gathering other information. Right. So obviously... Harry's letter isn't the end-all be-all either. Right. Um, but yeah, that's that's his take on it. So I want to briefly mention Hermione's role in this chapter before mm-hmm. we move on to um, Moody's kind of insane, unforgivable curses lesson. Um, Hermione's response to Harry sending his letter to Sirius is to kind of reprimand him for lying right which is funny because that's not really well for one thing it's not the worst sin a person can commit to lie especially if in the as is in this case harry is trying to lie to protect sirius from putting himself in more danger and hermione's like angry at harry about that she's like that was a lie you didn't imagine your scar hurting and you know it um and ron tells her to drop it and she does but i just think it's kind of illuminating that she still has this sort of two-dimensional attitude towards rule breaking that like lying for any reason is wrong and but so you know you i don't do think it. that's really her motivation here i think it's actually just that she's saying harry like that was a lie and you're lying and you're actually you're actually in trouble like you're actually in pain or in danger and she's more worried about harry kind of like being a hero and i mm. think that that continues like throughout this book so i think that it's Less to do with, like, the binary rule-breaking and more to do with, like, Harry, stop trying to be a martyr. That's a good point. And I want to take that a little bit further. So her, like, worldview around what rules are acceptable to break and what aren't, I think, evolves a lot in this book. Um, Especially around the issue of SPW and elf rights. Like, her sort of perception that, like, people in power kind of know what they're doing and Mm -hmm. that the world order is just and fair has been challenged by this realization that there's a whole race of of magical beings that are completely subjugated and society is totally fine with that um and so then she's like kind of realizing that what's just and what's fair is more important to her than what the rules are and that the rules don't always reflect that um and I think that continues to be the sort of main driving force behind her crusades throughout the series. Okay, so the the main thing that happens in this chapter really is that before the students arrive is that Moody slash Barty Crouch Jr. decides that he's going to put all the students and specifically Harry through the Imperius Curse and he's going to have them try to fight it off in the classroom. Yeah. So this is a, you know, a, a next level situation from the last <laughs> chapter where he is teaching them what the curses are, which is already kind of scandalous enough, demonstrating it on spiders, um, scaring everybody. Yeah. And now he's like, we're going to do it. And, you know, 
obviously there's maybe some level of safety, even though, you know, what, as far as students know, Moody is very unpredictable and will curse students. But he's like, we're in the classroom. I'm just going to tell you to jump on the desk. Um, yeah, he doesn't make them do anything. He doesn't dangerous. make them do anything dangerous or particularly embarrassing or anything like that. Doesn't make them like humiliate themselves necessarily. Right. But um, he is trying to put them through their paces here, and Harry is the only one that's really able to even kind of attempt to fight it off. And we hear honestly in just a brief sentence in this chapter that yes, and then Harry eventually fought it off by the end of the lesson mm-hmm. completely. We get we get a really long description of what the first time he was yes. under the curse was like. Um, and as I alluded to um, earlier in this podcast series when we talked about the Quidditch World Cup and the Vila, um, the sort of hold that it takes over your mind is very similar. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so the implication there might be that they run on similar types mm-hmm. of magic. Um, but he describes it as being like a dreamlike state where he's just kind of unfeeling, unthinking, no emotion, no nothing. It's just kind of like a blank, mm-hmm. empty environment. And then like you hear a voice telling you to do something and you're just like, okay, because mm-hmm. there's no, there's nothing else that really exists. So of course you will follow that instruction. But then for some reason, because Harry is a special protagonist boy, um, <laughs> He has another voice that says, I don't want to do that. Yeah. And so he gets to resist it. Um, and we aren't really told, like, how you can develop this. Is or, it, like, a sense yeah. of self? Is it, like, willpower? Is it something else? We don't know. But regardless, Harry has some sort of magical innate ability to overthrow this curse. And we also don't know. I guess it's interesting when you describe that. We also don't know if the other students or other people that experience it have that voice too but just can't act on it or if some people just don't have the other voice in their head when they're under the imperious curse yeah i mean according to moody you can see it in the person's eyes like whether they're sort of fighting to regain control Mm -hmm. um and in that way it's very similar to a lot of other sci-fi-esque depictions of mind control um but in harry's case i think we can say probably that the presence of that like alternate voice like your own voice essentially um trying to snap you out of it is the is the fighting Mm -hmm. you know and that the absence of that allows the person controlling you to exert full control yeah so what do we think let's focus on barty crouch jr Mm -hmm. in this moment like what do we think that his motivation is because i don't think it's that clear i mean he Maybe he wants, you know, Harry to be prepared for the tournament or prepared for, like, difficult tasks that he might have to do or, you know, mental fortitude kind of thing, constant vigilance. But he doesn't want Harry to be able to, like, resist curses if Voldemort puts it on him, right? right? Yeah, and this backfires on their plan in a huge way at the end of this book. Yeah, it's a weird situation. I think there's, there's a couple possibilities that occur to me. Again, we talked about this last chapter, but it's not clear to me that Dumbledore really does want the students to be placed under the Imperious Curse yeah, yeah, to train them sure. how to throw it off. Um, that seems very unlikely to me. And so my sense would be that um, Barty Crouch Jr. is somehow like getting revenge on the people that put him under the Imperious Curse, aka like his dad, mm-hmm. um, by 
you know teaching people how to throw it off not not even that but just like i'm gonna i'm just gonna put a whole bunch of people under yeah take the power now i'm in control kind of thing and like uh he might just be power tripping a little bit here and as and as a consequence maybe he didn't it didn't even occur to him that harry could learn to fight it off but then you know once he committed himself to putting the curse on students then he's like well i have to play the part of moody so if people do show signs of being able to throw it off i have to then like teach them how to Mm -hmm. do it um i I don't know i'm struggling with this one because on the one hand from a plot development standpoint we could see why harry needs to learn how to throw off the imperious curse but from a character perspective it's really hard to justify barty crouch jr wanting to hand harry tools like this right um you know you could say that he's just trying to build rapport as as moody you know to get into harry's good graces and Mm -hmm be a really strong mentor figure so that he can they can develop some mutual trust um because he needs harry to rely on him to get through the tournament in order for his plan to work he Mm -hmm. needs to be a trustworthy figure so maybe this is part of that i don't know but um it, it does it does feel very odd looking back on this and knowing that right this is a really important tool that harry uses to escape uh his his defeat by voldemort at the end of this book um, another brief aside, um, before we get to the main sort of crux of the chapter, um, we've, we've heard mentioned a couple of times and we'll continue to hear mentioned a few more times that Snape is focusing on poison antidotes this year. Um, so I, I guess I would just kind of tie that forward to the sixth year when Harry uses, uh, antidotes on Ron to save his mm-hmm. life, mm-hmm. um, that, I'll probably a lot of what he's learned about uh, poison antidotes he learned this year from Snape. Yeah, I never thought of that. In in this book, it serves as sort of a a way for the author to hint that Snape is trying to poison everybody and yeah, like, yeah. get away with it. Sort of the way that Moody is putting illegal curses on students and getting away with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but then they use things like the Bobaton Durmstrang arrival or the Wang of the Wands ceremony later on to sort of allow Harry to get out of these long potions lessons where Snape might try to poison him. Um, So that's just an interesting little tidbit. Another small tidbit in this chapter, which might be a little romance hint, since this is the first book where romance things start to happen. Um, (laughs) Hermione mentions Cedric Diggory's name and um, as someone who might be entering the tournament. And um, Ron seems a little jealous. And, you know, this might be kind of the very first or one of the first. I'm sure we could find earlier ones. But inkling that Ron has feelings for Hermione, which will increase significantly once um, Hermione ends up dating Crumb during this book. Yeah, I think this is the first time it's, it's even hinted at. But we'll definitely start to see that develop a lot more over the course of the book because... They'll go back and forth between, like, not really understanding each other or, like, communicating badly in their mm-hmm. teenage way to um, kind of, like, doing things to spite each other. And then mm-hmm. eventually um, they do get together in the seventh book, but it takes a really long time. This is where it really starts, I think. So, you know, Hermione's journey in this book in terms of romance will be... Um, it could be argued that she kind of has a crush on Harry and Ron at this moment in time. We can talk about that more later. We'll definitely talk but, more later. Uh, but yeah, she definitely she event she eventually ends up sort of dating Victor Crumb, 
and that makes Ron insanely jealous, and then um, things kind of progress from there. Um, but this is the first time when Hermione is talking about Cedric as a possible entrant into the Triwizard, and um, she's like, well, you know, he's uh, he's a really good student, he's a prefect, and Ron's like, oh, you only like him because he's handsome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so yeah, th- there is there is some of that there, for sure. So let's talk about the main event in this chapter, um, the arrival of the other schools. This is the first time we're really seeing um, people from other schools, like in in the flesh, aside from at you know briefly at the right, World Cup when right. we saw people in the in the forest. Um, so at the school, you know, before their arrival, everyone's really anxious. The professors are feeling a lot of anxiety yep. um, because Hogwarts is going to be contrasted against these other schools, and particularly. Hogwarts as a whole would be contrasted against only like the best and brightest from Bobaton and Durmstrang each. Yes, and that's kind of something that I forgot about, to be honest. Like, mm-hmm. I forgot that, I guess I probably knew that the entire school didn't come, but maybe I didn't. I don't know. I think I forgot until this chapter and then the next chapter when there's more descriptions of the students interacting with each other that it is, you know the best students and also the oldest students. So the only yeah. students that are above 17 or so of age to enter the tournament right. are there. And so it's basically like the coolest seniors ever from like, uh, you know, rival school, but that you never really see are like coming and they're being compared to all of the students at Hogwarts, which you would think would maybe be intimidating in one way, but it's not really because they're being compared against like, all the younger kids and all the kids that are not very skilled and talented as well. Right. So like McGonagall gets really upset because Neville can't do a switching spell. And she's like, please do not reveal that fact in front of anyone from Durmstrang or they're going to think that we aren't teaching you anything at Hogwarts. Yeah. And that's really embarrassing for me, the transfiguration professor. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of anxiety with the teachers wanting to show off, but also, um, being cognizant of that fact that they aren't they aren't only getting to show off their best students. Mm-hmm. So then the schools arrive. We've discussed in the synopsis already how they arrive. What does the way that they do that say about them? Like the Bobaton delegation arriving in a gigantic horse-drawn carriage, and then the Durmstrang delegation arriving by ship. Well, one th- I think this is a good time now to mention that and because i often forget that these schools are both co-ed as well yes but in the movies um there are only girls from bobatons and only boys from Durmstrang. yes and so we a little bit understand why we did that because the champions are you know of those genders but and and the schools themselves have those characteristics exactly. Durmstrang is is more kind of hyper masculine and bobaton is more feminine and um so you can see, like, archetypally why they would do that. But exactly. And that's sort of what I was thinking. Is, it's like an oversimplification. Yeah, it is. It is. And so just a reminder that that's the case here. Yeah. Um, and I think going along the, the sort of masculine-feminine lines, I think um, in some ways it's... I think of just Bobaton's very light and um, Darmstrong is very dark. And part of it is, like, France, <laughs> Germany, you know, sort of these... Um, this maybe uh, upper class is more. Uh, Bobaton seems like a little mm-hmm. bit of a fancier school. They're wearing like silks. The yeah. The fancy horses, carriage. They only drink 
you know, single malt whiskey is like the line that the, the flying horses <laughs> yeah. drink. Yeah. So it's a very sort of like we, you know, are a little bit high maintenance um, mm-hmm. Definitely. here. Definitely. And um, Madame Maxime is, and we'll talk about her more in a second, but she is, you know, dressed very elegantly, elegantly yeah. and she is clearly, you know, very proud and is just like, yes, I deserve this treatment. And Darmstrang seems, you know, also like arrogant in, in their own way of... But they're kind of rising up from the depths of the lake in this, like, hmm. surprise sort of sneak attack way. It's kind of, like, militaristic. Yes, way. very military. I think of it as a very sort of military school. Um, they're all wearing furs. They they all, like, look upset. <laughs> and, I mean, in my mind. Um, and they, um, but they are still so, like, very proud, it seems, and and tough and maybe a little bit lower class, although I don't know how much that actually translates. Yeah. I mean, in, in Rowling's way, uh, the, the other schools are, are very archetypal um, in that sense. And so like Durmstrang is kind of like Eastern European, lower class, maybe Slavic um, and kind of everything about it is, is that archetypal culture. So like, you know, blood red color, like evocative of like, you know, Transylvania or like Russia. War, the fact that yeah. they have furs, the fact that they live in the far north, um, you know, all that evokes this sort of archetype. And then Bobaton, on the other hand, is like almost the opposite. You know, their robes are blue. They have silks. They're very fancy French. You know, everything that you think of as like French high society is embodied in the school. And, and two, the way that they arrive, I was thinking um, about Beaubaton, it, to me, evokes the, um, like, Cinderella mm-hmm. archetype in yeah. a way. Like, Madame Maxime dismounting her, like, you know, beautiful blue horse-drawn carriage. Someone, like, steps out and opens the door for her and she dismounts. Right. You know, I think for her, this is um, how she wants to be seen. Yes, And yes. the fact that she has to overcome people's prejudices about her um size you know Mm -hmm. in order to sort of feel that way um she probably compensates a lot for that by putting on airs and and Mm -hmm. not even putting on airs i mean she's not um being pretentious she is that elegant and high society but that's probably um emphasized yes because she needs to sort of compensate for the the fact that people view her differently Yes, that's true. And I want to talk more about her, but thinking in general about, you know, if we're thinking that Hogwarts is trying to kind of impress everyone else and put its best foot forward as well, you know, we assume and we know that Bobatons and Durmstrang are doing the same as well. Mm -hmm. And I think that we can assume, you you know, separate from the writing, which is very kind of archetypal, is that probably at home at their schools, it's maybe more similar to Hogwarts even than we think. Um, But they have sort of presented like this sort of facade of like, we are, you know, we are the best of the best of ourselves and we are unique. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if I buy that. There's a lot of discussion between characters later on in the series about these sort of perceptions of their different schools and people from Durmstrang are all really impressed with Hogwarts and people from Bobaton are very underwhelmed. Yeah, that's Um, true. So I think that that is, is real, but 
Yeah. Let's talk more about Madame Maxime. So um, she's described as being pretty much exactly the same size as Hagrid, mm-hmm. who previously was a uniquely large person. Yes, and I think this is, you know, this is not something, like, as a first-time reader that you expect at all. I think we think of Hagrid as, like, an anomaly um, mm-hmm. completely, and, like, we won't ever meet anyone like him. And, you know, to have somebody that is the same size as him, we think, okay, so he's, you know, not the only one. He's not alone. So it's also an interesting contrast that she is, you know, um, a, we're assuming part giant, um, similar to Hagrid, which is something that we think of as kind of like, you know, not like high class fancy. Um, and she's coming across as like, I, you know, I am and I deserve that. And I think it's a great contrast for Hagrid as well. And we'll see kind of how he reacts to her um, next chapter. Yeah, I think. Well, so for one thing, we don't know that she's a half giant. That's true. At this point we don't in reading, and and when we do learn it, it it, it becomes clear that it's a huge. Um, she's very embarrassed about yes, that fact, yeah. and to the point where she's completely in denial about it right. to everybody. Um, the way that she and Hagrid deal with their identity as half giant is very interesting, and I think we can talk more about that in a future chapter. But just. As a first glance, these two people who are essentially the same size and have similar heritage, one of whom um, was kicked out of school at the Mm -hmm. age of 13 or so Mm -hmm. and has been the groundskeeper since then, is kind of a wild man, is friends with outcasts and weirdos, um, and is incredibly loyal to Dumbledore, but doesn't really have that many, like, actual friends. Um, and certainly it doesn't have very much power. The other hand, we have Madame Maxime, who rose to be the headmistress of probably the most prestigious wizarding school in Europe. Um, certainly the, the fanciest one. And is considered very high class, high society. She commands the respect of her students mm-hmm. in a way that neither of the other schools do. Although Dumbledore is very impressive, I think there are still people at Hogwarts that don't really respect him. Right, right. Um, and um, she is an incredibly important person uh, in that way. So she has accumulated a lot of status and power, um, I think, as sort of a way to mask her own insecurity mm-hmm. and to rise above society's perception of her. But Hagrid's kind of done the opposite. You know, he's right. embraced society's perception of him and, and turned that into his identity in a way that has kind of strengthened his own um, ideas about himself, what right. he likes and dislikes. He has no, you know, he doesn't have any compunction about the fact that he really likes dangerous creatures. Um, He's embraced that Mm -hmm. part of himself. Whereas Madame Maxime probably tries to push that side of herself down, if it exists at all. Yes, yes. So the other head of school, um, Igor Karkaroff, is not so fun um, compared to Madame Maxime. So... What we know so far about him is really not much, except that he seems a little scary. Um, he yes, almost comically so. has a goatee, he's wearing furs, he's sort of like, yeah, like, like a caricature of an evil character um, yeah. that you would imagine in a Disney movie or something. Um, and But he's in this moment not doing anything outwardly evil, he just is not 
very nice. Yeah, I feel like he's almost a secondary villain in a Disney movie. Yeah, yeah. it's like, you know, he's not the big bad who's behind everything, like, puppeteering the characters or whatnot. He's just, like, the guy who's kind of a jerk. Yes. (laughs) And, like, thinks really highly of himself or is putting on airs and, like, other people don't really like him. You know, not like a villain so much as just, like, a secondary kind of jerk. And... You know, we can talk more as we go through about his character, but I think, to me, his main his main actual, like, function in a literary way in this book is to be a red herring. Yeah, um, def- I definitely. One of several, but... One of several, but he is sort of the main one where we see, um, especially later with his interactions with Snape, you know, we, we find out that he was a death eater and obviously that's you know a red flag (laughs) and for sure when we when we learn about this um but even before we learn about it we think okay he is out to get harry he is trying he's He's got something weird going on and you know he's he's very we'll see he's very fiercely um an advocate for victor crumb and against hogwarts Mm -hmm. so he's constantly trying to show hogwarts up and and build up victor and through Victor, kind of like his own status and prestige. Right, right. Um, so Harry sees him as kind of an adversary for that reason, but um, to say that he's behaving badly or anything, I don't know. We don't have anything like that yet, at least. No. Thank you all for listening to Harry Podcast and Bobotons and Durmstrang. We hope you've enjoyed our discussion of this chapter. If you have thoughts or questions about anything we've discussed today especially Madame Maxime and Igor Karkaroff, please email us at contact at theharrypodcast.com. You can find out more about the show and listen to any of our episodes at theharrypodcast.com or on Apple Podcasts. Stay tuned for next time when we put our names in for Chapter 16, The Goblet of Fire. I'm Madeline. And I'm David, and we'll see you next time on The Harry Podcast. Knox.